You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John 8, verse 21 through 30. Then he said again to them, I go away, and you will seek me, and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews were saying, Surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. So they were saying to him, who are you? Jesus said to him, said to them, What have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father, so Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And I do nothing of my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that you would sanctify us by your truth. We thank you that your word is truth. And may it be to us a cause of great rejoicing as we rejoice in your grace. We pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Show us our Savior, that we might behold him. We believe that when your word is rightly preached, your voice is truly heard. And may that be the case for us today as we gather around your word. Grant us obedient hearts, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, occasionally it happens that um, while I am in the middle of preaching, I have some sort of an insight into the text that doesn't occur to me during the week of studying beforehand. And uh, if you've ever taught a number of times or preached a number of times, then you know what that's like you're going through the ex, I get some nodding from people who have done this. You're going through the exposition of scripture, explaining it, and everything's going according to plan, and you're following your outline, or if it's on a paper or in your head, as mostly it's always in my head, and you're going through that, and then suddenly something occurs to you that you think, wow, where was that the last week during the 40 hours of preparation? A connection or an application or some observation or a cross-reference in the text. And whenever that happens to me, and, and it is rare, thankfully, my inclination is always to immediately sit down with a pad of paper and a pen and begin to write that out, sketch that out, and think it through, and sort of make notes of what I'm thinking about. But I have found that that would probably be very very awkward for you, so I continue on with the message when that happens. Among those who preach and teach and among those who teach preaching, there are sort of two schools of thought about what to do when a random thought pops into your head in the middle of a message pertaining to the text. On the one hand, there are those who say, that is the leading of the Holy Spirit. I mean, that is Him leading you in the moment, and you're feeling it, and brother, you need to take that and run with that and see where the Spirit takes you in that. I don't subscribe to that. There are those, on the other hand, who say, never trust a random thought. And and certainly don't ever run with a random thought, because that's like running with scissors. Worse less, it's like running with scissors while juggling a chainsaw. It's dangerous, especially if you're not proficient at juggling chainsaws. And... I subscribe to this section over here. Now, there are some, and I've had preachers, pastors tell me this, you just don't trust the Holy Spirit. That's why you don't run with those. 
Actually, it's myself that I don't trust. And I have found through much experience, much painful experience, that what is unprepared is seldom helpful. And so I fear the unprepared, and I try and stay away from it. Um, I have found that when you run down a rabbit trail, oftentimes it results in the death of the rabbit. And it is not trusting in the Holy Spirit to do that. It is presumption to do that, and so I don't do it. Well, last week, while I was in the middle of the message, something occurred to me that I immediately thought to myself, where were you during the last 40 hours of studying and preparing for this message? And it was a connection between something that Jesus says about dying in your sins and the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 3, which we read. And I briefly mentioned it, and then I, I ran away from what was unprepared so that I could have a chance to sort of think it through a little bit. Well, this last week I thought it through, and I want to draw your attention to the connection that in my mind was immediately made when I was reading through Ezekiel 3, verse 18, the, commission that deal, the, the passage that deals with the commission of Ezekiel. Jesus alludes to some phrasing that Ezekiel uses, and he pulls language right out of Ezekiel 3 in his warning to the Pharisees in John chapter 8. And it is connected with the phrase in verse 21 when Jesus says, "Where uh, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Now that phrase is a phrase that Jesus borrows from Ezekiel chapter 3. And what occurred to me last week is in borrowing that phrase from Ezekiel chapter 3, the Jews would have instantly made a connection in their minds between what Jesus was saying and what Jesus was doing and what Ezekiel was commissioned to do and what Ezekiel said. And so when I made that connection in my mind last week, instantly I was flooded with all of these thoughts, these parallels between Jesus and Ezekiel. Let me give you a few of the parallels. Ezekiel was commissioned by God. He was told by God, Ezekiel, I am sending you to a stubborn and obstinate people. It says in chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, I have sent you to them who should listen to me. Now, if you could use one phrase to describe the Pharisees in John chapter 8, what would it be? They should have listened to Jesus, right? Of all of the people in the nation of Israel, who should have recognized the Messiah when he arrived? Should have been the Pharisees. Well, God said to Ezekiel, I have sent you to them who should listen to you, yet the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you since they are not willing to listen to me. Surely the whole house of Israel is stubborn and obstinate. Well, those are two graphic words, aren't they? Stubborn and obstinate. Now, out of that very passage of Ezekiel chapter 3, Jesus draws this language of dying in your iniquity. And here's what Ezekiel is told to do. Go warn the nation. Go warn the nation that they should turn from their sin. And if they turn from their sin, I will forgive them and they will live. Now, Jesus is doing the very same thing in John chapter 8 that Ezekiel was told to do in Ezekiel chapter 3. And here's the parallel. Jesus came to a stubborn and obstinate people and he told them, turn from your iniquity and you will not die in your iniquity. Ezekiel was sent to the stubborn house of Israel, and he told them, turn from your iniquity, and you will not die in your iniquity. Ezekiel told the people, if you turn and believe in God, you will live. Jesus told the same people, if you turn from your sin and believe in me, you will live. Now, do you notice the parallel there? Do you notice who Jesus is claiming to be implicitly? When he said to the Jews, you must turn and live, that was Ezekiel's promise, turn to God and live. Jesus promised, and he said, if you turn to me and believe in me, you will not walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. And like in Ezekiel's day, in Jesus' day, the Jews were a stubborn and obstinate people. They resisted that, and though a prophet stood in their midst, and though a prophet warned them of judgment to come, and though a prophet gave them the offer of eternal life, if they would turn, repent of their sin, and believe upon him, they were a stubborn and obstinate people, and they rejected him. And in John chapter 8, we have the same type of warning given to the Jews of Jesus' day, that Ezekiel gave to the Jews of his day. And in John chapter 8, we have the very same response 
from the Jews of Jesus' day that Ezekiel got from the Jews in his day. They were willing to die in their sin rather than turn from their sin and embrace the forgiveness and life that God offered to them. John 8 is a warning passage. There are invitations in John 8. There are promises of blessing in John 8. But John 8 is a series of warnings to a hard-hearted and obstinate people who should have listened to Jesus, but they would not. They would not turn from their sin. Now we left off in John chapter 8 with verse 21, which sort of introduced us to verses 22 and 23. John chapter 21, Jesus said to them, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. That's the phrase from Ezekiel 3. Where I am going, you cannot come. And we saw that there were two Two consequences or two results of sin. One of them was that it blinds people to a true knowledge of God. And second, it excludes people from the presence of God. That's what sin does. It blinds men to a true understanding of who God is. And it excludes men from the presence of God. Now we pick it up in verse 22. And you're going to notice in verse 22 a a very blasphemous statement that the Jews make. It's not going to seem blasphemous to you at first. But as we work our way through it, you'll see how it is. A very blasphemous statement in verse 22. And then in verses 23 and 24, Jesus explains to them what he means in verse 21. This is why you cannot go to where I am going. This is why you will die in your sins. Verse 23, because of their nature. And verse 24, because of their choice. So let's look at verse 22. This is their blasphemous statement and their response to Jesus' statement that where I am going, you cannot come. Right? You will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Now look how the Jews responded to that. Verse 22. So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. Now Jesus in verse 21 has just given them a very solemn warning. Very solemn warning. If you do not turn, you will die in your iniquity. Right? Your sin. Unrepented of, unatoned for, and unforgiven. In verse 22, they take a very solemn warning... And they turn it into a joke. And not just a joke, but listen, a venomous, blasphemous joke. And it is a mockery to Jesus when they say to him, what, is he going to kill himself? Now Jesus had made this statement to them earlier that they, he was going to a place where they could not go. Remember John chapter 7, verses 33 and 34? For a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am... You cannot come. Now, Jesus already said that to that same group of people earlier. And how did they respond back in chapter 7? Verse 35, the Jews then said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? Now, that was an insulting question as well. In chapter 7, they basically insulted Jesus by saying, He's going to be so rejected by us and so despised by us that the only place he's going to be able to get any success is if he goes off away from the land of Israel and teaches all those uneducated Gentiles. Then he will find a following. That's the type of despicable teacher that they thought that he was. So that's how they mock him in chapter 7. In, in chapter 8, it seems that they have understood that when he talks about going to a place where they cannot come, that they finally understand he's talking about dying. He's talking about death. That's why they talk about him committing suicide. Verse 22, he was not going to kill himself, will he, since he says, I'm going to where you cannot come? They they blasphemously suggest that Jesus, in order to go where they cannot come, is going to commit suicide. Isn't that ironic, by the way, that the people, the very people who were plotting his death, were asking him if he might commit suicide? There's a bit of an irony there. I mean, it seems that they got the death of Jesus on their mind, right? They're almost a little preoccupied with this man dying. The minute he mentions something that they... Obviously, they obviously associated Jesus' statement with his own death and going to heaven. They made that connection and then said he's going to commit suicide, is he? Now listen, suicide, this is what makes their question so blasphemous. Suicide among the Jews was 
incredibly despised. It was common, probably as common as it is today, or maybe more so, but it was despised, absolutely abhorred by the Jews. And the Jews had a belief among themselves in their day, in Jesus' day, that the person who commits suicide goes instantly and eternally to the darkest, hottest, worst places of hell. It was an instant ticket to hell. Josephus, expressing that belief of the Jews, says, quote, But as for those who have laid mad hands upon themselves, the darker regions of the netherworld receive their souls, and God, their father, visits upon their posterity the outrageous acts of their parents. End quote. That was the belief of the Jews. That somebody who laid mad hands against themselves, killed themselves, would go to hell, and that God would visit even upon their children the punishment for that act of their parents. It was so despised and so despicable. Now listen, do you get the implication, the innuendo of what they're saying when they say, surely he's not going to commit suicide, is he? Let me flesh it out. Where did these Pharisees think that they would go when they died? Heaven. Jesus has just said, I am going, and where I am going, you cannot come. Well, he must be going to commit suicide then. Because the only way that he could go somewhere where we cannot go is if he goes to hell. Fill in the blank, right? That is the innuendo of their statement. You're saying that you're going to a place where we cannot come? Well, the only reason way that, that would be possible is if you go to hell. So you must be going to commit suicide. Do you notice that? I mean, that is just, that is blasphemy on a level that is almost unutterable. That is how much they despised him. Now, interestingly, in John 10, Jesus would talk about giving up his life, right? He says it in John 10. He says, I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus laid down his life. He gave up his life. But is that suicide? Is that suicide? What makes that not suicide? How is that not suicide? He gives it up, right? We recognize the difference between somebody giving up their life for no end, no good end, or no good reason, and somebody giving up their life in the place of another as an act of sacrifice. Jesus describes his death in John 10 in terms of sacrifice. The Jews in John 8 describe his death in terms of suicide. Their implication is that he would go to hell as an act of his death. Jesus in John 10 describes his death as one being given for the life of other people, for the lives of many. He would give his life as a ransom. That's not suicide, but in a very crass way they describe his death. Right? The only way you can go where we cannot is if you go to hell, because we're going to heaven. I want you to notice the self-righteousness in that statement. Do you see that? The self-righteousness. It does not even enter into their mind the possibility that they could die in their iniquity. They don't even give thought to the potential of dying in such a way as to earn or deserve a place in hell. They think so highly of themselves, so self-righteous are they, so convinced of their own goodness, that they would sooner believe that it was possible for Jesus to go to hell than for them to go to hell. That is self-righteousness on a stunning level. But listen, it is as common today as it was back then among the Pharisees. Because wicked men hate to be told that their evil deeds deserve hell. Wicked men hate to be told that they are not good. They're so convinced of their own goodness that when you suggest that they're not good, it immediately offends them. When you suggest to them that they deserve something other than heaven, they are offended. The same with these Jews. They, would, they could sooner believe that they would find a place in heaven than that this man would find a place in heaven. 
They viewed him as a sinner, a blasphemer, an uneducated, hick Jew, some traveling rabbi who was untaught and unlearned and had nothing but the worst of Jews for his followers and his disciples. He was a heretic and a blasphemer as far as these men were concerned, and they had no problem at all consigning him to the flames of hell in their self-righteousness of thinking that they deserved a place in heaven in spite of their sin. It's amazing. Now look at Jesus' explanation in verses 23 and 24. He passes right over their blasphemous state and right over their innuendo and gets right to the heart of it. And in verse 23 and 24, he explains what he means in verse 21. Look at verse 21 again. I go away, you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Then their blasphemous state in verse 22. Now the explanation of that in verses 23 and 24. Verse 23, and he was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Verses 23 and 24 explain verse 21. Why is it that they were unable to go to where he was going? Because he was from above and they were from below. That describes their nature. That describes their nature. But in verse 24, he describes their choice. They would not believe that he was the I am. And because they remained in their unbelief, by their own choice, they remained in a condition alienated to God. In verse 23 and 24, Jesus describes two things, their nature and their choice. Both of those things damn men. Either one individually is enough to damn men. Both of them together is reason to damn men, for men to be damned and to judge because of their nature and because of their choice. And by the way, those two things go together and we ought never to separate them. Do you know why men choose what they do? Because of their nature, right? Their nature is corrupt. It is because of our desires our affections, and our passions. It is because we are of this world that apart from the grace of God, we will remain damned and remain alienated from God because by choice, man suppresses the truth and unrighteousness, hates the light, loves the darkness, and hates the one true God. That is our choice. Those two things, nature, verse 23, and choice, verse 24. And those two things go together. Our choice is always an expression of our nature. Let's look at our choice, or sorry, our nature, verse 23. Jesus said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, and I am not of this world. He uses two words to describe them, from below and of this world. Now those two, those are two parallel statements in verse 23. By from below, Jesus does not mean that they're from hell. That's not what he's saying. The contrast is not between heaven and hell. He's not saying I'm from heaven, you're from hell. The second phrase, the parallel phrase, explains it. You are from this world. You are of this world. And Jesus says, I am not of this world. Now that phrase describes, those two phrases describe their nature. They are born in the flesh. They are born in this world. They belong to this age. And by the way, this is true of all of us who are born into this world. All of us in our born condition, we are of this world. We are from here. The only one who has come into the human race who is not from here is Jesus. But all the rest of us, born in the flesh, born in this world, born as part of this age, we are people in every sense of the world, completely fleshly, completely lost, and completely a part of this world system and this world kingdom. That is the word that Jesus used to describe them. He uses, by the way, a similar description in John 3 when he says to Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Right? If you are not born from above, you will remain in this world, of this world, and you will die of this world, and you will be forever separated from the world to come if you are not born from above. Because that which is born into this world of the flesh is of the flesh. And it is thus alienated from the world to come. We are alienated from God by birth, by nature. We remain alienated from God by choice. Did you catch that? 
We are born alienated from God by nature. We remain alienated from God by choice. And Jesus is here describing their nature. You are of this world, completely wrapped up in this world, and by contrast, Jesus is not. Jesus was not of this world, and he was from above. When he describes them as being of this world, he is describing their affections, their loves, their, their passions, their desires, their interests, their thinking, the, the manner of life, their priorities, everything about them was of this world and was fleshly. Jesus, on the other hand, did not share any of those things in common. He says in verse 29 that he always does the things which are pleasing to the Father. Jesus, on the other hand, all of his affections, his priorities, his mind, his thinking, his mode of life, all of it was from above. It was not of this world. They, on the other hand, had nothing in common with him. That's important to remember. They had nothing in common with him. And that is what he is saying. You are of this realm. I am completely outside of this realm. I come from a place outside of this realm. I have been brought here. I have come here. I have been sent here. But I do not belong to that which you are part of. They were of this world. By the way, friendship with the world is what? Enmity with God, right? They were, they were as friendly with the world and the world system as it was possible for them to be. They belonged to the lust of the flesh. They lived their, their lives according to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the pride of life and the boastful pride of life. That was the description of those men in every way. They were, in every sense of the word, worldly men and had nothing in common with Jesus. They would die in this world and part of this world because they needed someone to deliver them from this world to the next. And that's what Jesus offers in verse 24. And in fact, listen, this is what they must come to the, they must come to this conclusion to be saved. He is not of this world. That's what verse 24 is. When he says, I, you must believe that I am. Jesus is saying, you must believe that this is true. That I am not of this world. That I am superior to this. I am outside of this. That I am God. You must believe that in order to be saved. All right, verse 23 describes their nature. Now look at verse 24. It describes their choice. Verse 24. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Notice twice Jesus says that they would die in their sins. This is the reason. This explains why it is that he could say you will die in your sins. You're not of this, you're, you are of this world. That was the cause. They were born into this world, alienated from God by nature. They would remain part of this world, alienated from God by choice. Because they would not believe that he was, that he is, that he is the I am. I guess that's the way to say it. They would not believe that Jesus is the I am. And for that reason, they would die in their sins. Twice, Jesus says, solemn warning, you will die in your sins. This is the reason I said you will die in your sins. Because you will not believe that I am. You will die in your sins. He's warning them, right? In the minds of the Jews, they're hearing Ezekiel chapter 3, die in iniquity. And they should have drawn the conclusion that this is a prophet warning us to turn from our wickedness and embrace him. And if we do that, he will give to us life. We will live. But Jesus instead is warning them, you are going to die in your sins. It should be obvious to you and I that if we are of this world, born in this world, which we are when we're born, we are alienated by God by nature, if we are born into this world in that condition, we must need someone outside of this world to deliver us from it, right? If two men are drowning together, one does not call out to the other to rescue him from drowning, right? If two men are dead in trespasses and sins, one does not call out to the other to resurrect him from life. He can't do that. Two men, one man, two men walking in darkness, one man is not able to lead the other one to light. Our very condition requires that there is somebody from outside of us, somebody from outside of our realm, who will come in 
and rescue us from sin, deliver us from death, resurrect us from our state of spiritual death, and shine the light upon us and give us a new heart and a new nature. One wicked and corrupt man cannot do that for another wicked and corrupt man. That is why Jesus must be a Savior who is not merely human, but divine. And that's the point in verse 24. You must believe that He is the I Am in order for you to be saved. We need an outsider. Now those of us who have been saved, we have been delivered from this world. And now the Bible describes us as no longer part of this world. John chapter 15, Jesus said to His disciples, If the world hates you, you know that it hated Me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, for this reason the world hates you. See, the elect, the church, God's people, were not part of the world system. We were born into this world. We once were part of that. But listen, the only thing that was able to distinguish us from the world system was the sovereign eye of God's electing, loving grace. He knew who it was that He had chosen out of the world. And now, having come to faith in Christ... This world is not our home. First Peter chapter 2 says we're aliens and strangers. Philippians 3 says our citizenship is in heaven. This world is as much a part of you and I. I can't even come up with an analogy. I shouldn't start analogies that I can't finish. We're not even a part of this world whatsoever. Not at all. This world is not our home. We have no kinship here. No affection here. There is nothing here that we ought to love. Nothing here that we ought to hold securely. Nothing here that we really should in any deep or concerning sense care about whatsoever. This world is not ours. We are completely something else by His grace because He has chosen us out of the world. He has made us no longer part of this world and He has taken us out of this world through faith in His Son. So this world is not ours anymore. And we have been completely, by God's grace, delivered from this world and this world system. So what is it then that keeps men in this world, of this world, from below? What is the cause of them remaining in that condition? It is unbelief. Unbelief. That is what is to blame. It is because men will not come. They are of this world. They do not desire it. They do not want it. They will not come. They are set at enmity and hostility against God. And until God changes the sinful heart, men cannot, because they are rendered incapable by their unwillingness to come and to believe upon the Son for eternal life. They will not. They cannot, because they hate Him. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They love darkness rather than light. They willingly exchange the truth for a lie. And they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. All an act of men's choice. They do that by choice. Men are born into this nature, alienated from God by nature. They remain in that condition by their own choice. They would not believe. But there is something that they must believe in verse 24. There is something that they have to believe in order to be saved. What type of belief is Jesus describing in verse 23? It is, or 24. It is a belief in Him as the I am. Now you'll notice, if your translation does this, you will notice that, that the word He, unless you believe that I am He, the word He is probably in italics. Some of you have translations that do that, where they italicize words that are not in the original Greek. Sometimes that's very helpful. Because there are things in the Greek language which are implied and some things, some things that you're alluded to and are kind of assumed that they're part of the word, but there's no real corresponding English phrase. And so sometimes that word is, that idea is sort of filled out. And a lot of times translators will italicize that to demonstrate that what is being added there is not in the original. The original simply says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Now the NIV translates it, unless you believe that I am who I claim to be, 
That is completely unhelpful. Not only does that cloud it, that actually completely obscures the meaning of the text. It's one of those translations that is entirely unfitting and does not belong whatsoever. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Now that introduces us to a subject that is so vast, so enormous, so glorious, so profound, that I can only but introduce it this morning. Jesus is drawing from now Exodus chapter 3 and numerous passages from the book of Isaiah. And now this is the issue. What do you believe about me? That's the question in John 8. What is it that you believe about me? Now in their eyes, to the Pharisees, Jesus was far lower than they were. They judged everything according to the flesh. They looked at him. They saw a rabbi. They saw a man whose birth was shrouded in mystery and scandal. They saw a common, ordinary, traveling preacher. Somebody who they didn't care for. It was uneducated. It was just a mere man. Somebody who threatened them. Somebody who deserved to die. A heretic. A false teacher. That was their view of him. He, in their eyes, was far below them. In John 8.24, Jesus is saying, You must assess me as far above you. You must believe that I am. Right? Not you must accept me as your peer. Not you must embrace me as your equal. But you must believe that I am. And he's using the divine title there. Then, unless you do that, you will die in your sins. We've seen through the Gospel of John that there is a difference between shallow faith, which cannot save, and real believing, saving faith. You see, remember that? The shallow faith of John chapter 2, they saw the miracles, they believed in him, Jesus didn't commit himself to them because it was a shallow faith. The shallow faith of John chapter 6, they saw the miracles, they wanted to make him king. But after they heard his preaching, they left. Not for that, and they left, departed. It's the shallow faith of John chapter 7 of some who are willing to believe in him to a point, but not enough to be saved. Not enough to really embrace him. So now we get to the crux of the issue. What is it that separates, what is one of the things that separates shallow faith from real saving faith? It is the content or the object of the faith. If you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, is that sufficient? If you believe that he was a good teacher, is that sufficient? If you believe that he was a savior from sin, an enlightened guide, is that sufficient? If you believe that he was Jesus of Nazareth, is that sufficient? What must you believe in order to be saved? John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am, then you will die in your sins. You will perish in your iniquity. Because there is one specific element to saving faith that you must believe and you must embrace if you are to be saved. And that is that Jesus is the one who spoke to Moses in the burning bush. That he is the I am. That introduces us to that concept and we will see tomorrow, or not tomorrow, it's not nearly enough time to prepare. We will see next week why it is essential that you believe that and that you embrace that and why a divine Savior is necessary rather than just a human Savior. Let's pray together. Our Father, by Your grace, we have believed upon Your Son. We thank You for Him, for sending Him to deliver sinners from the wrath that is to come. Thank You that You, by Your grace, have counted us as part of that number and that we have been brought by Your grace and by Your Spirit to saving faith. Thank You for changing our hearts and giving us grace to call out to You for mercy. Thank You for opening our eyes from darkness to light and translating us from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of Your Son. Thank You for such a marvelous forgiveness and redemption which has so fully purchased the the possession that is Yours that You gave to Your Son in eternity past. And thank You that we are among them. We praise You for Your grace. And we ask, O God, that you would give us a commitment and a love and an adoration and affection for the one who is the great I am, 
our eternal, glorious, and divine Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.